So passion ultimately is what you discover along the way. It is like love that blossoms over time, not you know that um, instant love. Those are things you should be worried about. If somebody is totally, deeply, passionately in love in one day, I mean, it's probably infatuation. They'll get over it. So you've got to fall in love slowly and, 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 and let it develop. Deep conversations about what really matters with the best minds in business, startups, sports, music, and many more. This is the Best in Class podcast. Welcome to the podcast, and I'm your host Harish Narayanan. In this episode, I'm privileged to deep dive into the mind of Shridhar Vembu, one of the best entrepreneurial leaders in the country today. He needs no introduction in the startup circles. He's the founder and CEO of Zoho, one of India's largest tech product companies and a pioneer of the SaaS ecosystem in India. During the IT services boom in the country, his vision of building a bootstrap product company was non-intuitive and extremely bold, to say the least. His work has given wings to other entrepreneurs across the country, and he continues to inspire many more. His is a story of unusual perspectives being put into action fearlessly and with an almost childlike curiosity. And we will seek to unravel some of the whys behind the what's in this wide-ranging conversation. Hope you enjoy it. There's a lot of unlikely perspectives and things that have come through in your life, right? The first is building uh, building a multi-billion dollar business without raising any capital. So that's one. Secondly, creating software in a in a field where there were giants in your field. So uh, whether it is Microsoft or Google, you know, you have gone against a very a big and well-funded competitors. Third is your move to small towns and uh, hiring more from small towns and now moving to a small village near Tenkasi and building a, a company there. Fourth is uh, the way you recruit and train students with the Zoho University, not necessarily looking for college graduates. We can talk about each and of these things uh, separately, but I want to understand as a person, what makes you have such different perspectives and what is it that has driven you to take these risks and how have you been able to do it consistently over time and see success regularly. So each one of these things right, would have been a very different thing for anybody to think about. Even one of these things, okay, let's build a billion dollar business without raising capital itself is a case study. But I've seen you consistently do this at multiple levels. So what, how do you, how would you attribute your uh, success to the way you think and what is the difference in thinking and where did it come from? I want to hear your story and how you formed your uh, thought process. Please. So, Subala, thank you for having me. Thank you for all your kind words. And uh, you are praising too much. In fact, you are, uh, I, from my, where I sit, it does not feel like uh, the way that you describe this. It does not feel like success. And uh, it is, in fact, a lot of us have ideas. Right. A lot of us are, uh, the difference between most people are, uh, and, and people who succeed in something is they tend to act on those ideas eventually at some point. Sure. We'll take an example about education you mentioned. That's one, one example. I'll take an example. How many times that, whether it's a college student, you're in a company or shooting the breeze. Hmm. Even in IIT, sitting in a hostel, I remember thinking and talking to friends, isn't this a whole giant waste of time? Aren't we wasting a lot of time here? No. And that was true. I mean, you know, you've been in, in college. Yeah. A lot of time, youth gets wasted, thrown away, right? Just 
some of it is enjoyable of course yeah. but some of it is not even enjoyable for example the the class you never cared for but you still had to cram correct that was not even enjoyable you know you're wasting time but you're still wasting time right so all of us have gone through this and similarly how many times any of us would have had a conversation that is the degree really useful mm. or college useful or do grades matter in the work and you can i'm sure you can find examples anybody can find examples of people who do very well at work having very poor credentials right so all of these are observations and these naturally give rise to ideas i call them opinions see most of us carry our own opinions like that but what i try to do is take an opinion like that and try to derive a take it deeper probe deeper why do i feel it was a waste of time what was the waste of time about and why don't grades matter what is it that you do at work that don't correlate well with the grades go a little deeper deeper and deeper those opinions then tend to solidify into convictions back to the observations then you test you test your convictions for example i have a hypothesis will this be true and then let's try an experiment sometimes you have to test only by experimentation so i tend to launch those experiments if i have a conviction i tend to launch that experiment let's see what happens right what's the cost of failure you are going to fail but uh, let's say then we we'll learn something too so that is how i take an idea and then i it becomes an opinion an observation becomes an opinion and then it becomes a conviction and then it becomes an experimentation and the conviction drives the experiment and then you learn sometimes you abandon the conviction you were wrong and sometimes you you know it solidifies the experiments confirm your theory so to speak then you proceed further so that is how all of these are whether it's a bootstrap company or whether it is our tinkasi project that was an experiment our zoho university zoho school of learning was an experiment each of them when it started was a very small experiment we didn't have any grand ideas what it's going to become but over time it, it kind of the, the seed that was planted became bigger and i am now in that another experiment which is you know can we do it on a village it's still still very much an experiment by the way and uh, and i you know this time it is a lot of you know public interest in this experiment and uh, that does not mean it is going to be correct and it will work by the way that even this could fail and i'm okay to take the failure i will accept failure if that failure is what uh, this thing i'm not going in thinking i'll fail but i am kind of detached from it having to succeed in order to now we all validate on life meaning mm-hmm. you will try something else then. we'll try how to make it work in some other way so that is how i think about this so you and and similarly take rural whenever any of us have gone on a trip somewhere in nature and you go to a spacious place haven't most of us said this exact words like i wish i could live here <laughs> right yes. i wish i don't have to go back to bangalore i wish i don't have to go back to chennai haven't hmm. most of us thought the thought or at least said this alone <laughs> right and that's what i think here and then why don't people act on it because that becomes banter that becomes casually said not really intended not meant and eventually abandoned and yet there was a seed there it was trying to germinate in your head we dismissed it too lightly i think that's what ends up happening for most people that's all it is so i hope you got the flavor of what i'm trying to get at right? very very interesting uh, shiva and see right now you have seen multiple successes over decades right and 
you're in a place where even if you fail it doesn't matter monetarily or reputation wise you're already uh, you know at a certain level i would like to go back to shridhar of 20 years ago when you were doing these experiments at the risk of failing what gave you the confidence or what gave you the risk taking ability to not worry about failing or maybe being okay with failing well you know if it all failed i get a job and i'll be working somewhere and we are not having this conversation right <laughs> what's so bad about that life <laughs> right yeah. so that's how i would think actually that's how i remember thinking i you know the whole thing doesn't work out you know maybe i'll, I'll become an engineer and i will write code and i'll be happy i'm, I'm you know generally i actually thought to start in other words it's not i don't try to raise the stakes so high on myself that man if i fail and i would this is the thing i tweeted about right i said start like new york times is going to splash a massive uh, headline that you know i failed trying something right yeah <laughs> in fact actually failing after you achieve that kind of thing is hard right because yeah. maybe you not worry about uh, i mean take someone like elon musk i mean whatever he does he said like it's very hard to live like that right so but when you are when you don't have that pressure why put yourself that pressure under that pressure it's not going to matter anyway it's not like a, a newspaper is going to put a headline about your failure so see i definitely f- wish that more people think like you but for for most of you know young college graduates just stepping out of college who have this mentality right the moment they don't ace an exam or get the slot one job it seems like life is over so how how do you talk to your uh, new hires and so forth? what do you tell them and how do you inspire them to take your attitude yeah i we tend to hire a lot of people who have gone through some difficulties in life that's first step you know they come from you know maybe backgrounds that where they face challenges in life they had uh, like quite a few of our employees would have had some some kind of failure in the record if you look at their uh, academic record they might have had a career so or they may have other kinds of uh, uh, difficulties so uh, no, lost my father at a age or or something happened and my father's business failed and i watched i've mm-hmm. heard employees stories like this mm-hmm. so that gives them more resilience so yeah ultimately there is a resilience that comes from going through adversity and a lot of that's actually one reason why i i like people who have gone through adversity because then they understand they don't take anything for granted they don't take it too seriously that adversity can happen it happens and that's actually how i prepare also in fact i tell people even now i tell people in the company that if this whole thing may not work out that we may not have jobs in 3 uh, or 5 years but don't don't obsess thinking about it and being very you know worried about it but feel am i doing something relevant will the world care for my work and if the world cares for my work maybe the world will pay me to do this work if the world doesn't care and i'm not relevant then i'll have to do something else and i say be prepared for it and and hold the thought don't be afraid of the thought don't let the thought paralyze you but don't be afraid of the thought that's what i say nice one yeah talk a bit about your family right how do they support you in this journey you have changed a lot of uh, you've tried a lot of things experiments as you said right how does your wife and and your children how do they see this how do they support you in this journey that's uh, not very uh, it's i've always been thought of as someone who will do something crazy that is uh, not so the <laughs> no it's uh, it's as they say no man is uh, uh, you know 
you, you only see the sort of the craziness sometimes. People who are close to me, even my siblings, everyone, will see me slightly crazy. Even my mother actually still kind of uh, thinks sometimes that the, the matter has to be settled whether I'm a crazy or not, right? <laughs> so, and because, you know, I, I do crazy things like this. I mean, I'm sitting here and my mother calls me and asks me, what are you doing there alone? I mean, you're sitting there and uh, why are you sitting there? And why can't you be normal for a change, right? <laughs> so that's part of that. But supportive in the sense, right, broadly accept the little bit of the quirks that come with it, right? Being uh, somewhat crazy. And I I have my quirks. I, in fact, I was talking to my sister and I said, even now I'm not able to do chit-chat. I mean, if I talk to someone, I'll be launching into some, we will talk about something deeper than that. And so, you know, there are whole topics where I know zero, I'll draw black. Mm. For example, I cannot name what the latest movies are in the last year. Mm. I cannot name one movie that launched in the last one year in Hindi or in Tamil, or even English, by the way. I cannot name one movie right now. It's that bad, actually. Mm. Mm. And I cannot name uh, who's the leading sports figures in tennis or something now. Mm. So it's not like, you know, the news would not have crossed. I probably wasn't paying attention. So, sure. Which means movies, sports, a lot of things are off limits to conversation with me because I'll draw a blank. I'll draw a zero, total zero. That's sort of like, you know, talking to someone about uh, general theory of relativity. Mm. That would be how talking about movie, talking movies with me right now. <laughs> I'll draw a blank. Right. So that, those are clicks, right? And that's, that's, that's who I made. So. The other thing which I find very interesting or uh, different or quirky, right, uh, in using your word, is uh, your focus on simple living or minimalism or, you know, not worrying about material achievements in a big way. I feel that going back to your uh, writings, I feel you have been this way for a while. It's not something that you are, you know, it's not a, a realization that is dawning as you age. It is something that you've been for a while. Yeah. I believe in a lot of similar approaches. I feel that uh, many of the uh, views or the desires that our generation, my generation holds, may not necessarily be the right things for the long term. Right? Uh, we care about what somebody owns, what they, which car they drive, where they live, etc. A lot may not be the right things for us to worry about in the long term. Right? How would you, if you were to advise uh, again, young folks just entering the workforce? How would you bring that view to them? How would you explain yeah. the Sridhar philosophy of simple living to them? Yeah, it comes down to who your friends are. If you tell me who your friends are, I'll tell you who you are. That's yeah. a famous saying. Sure. So often a lot of things we do because we, we have a set of friends we have to live up to our interests. And, uh, and if you are friendships and relationships mm. are based on that material uh, circumstances, who you have to impress, we all rethink those some. And I often, in fact, in Zoho, people ask me the same question. I say, look at your friends and which friends you keep and which friends you don't keep. And that is based on who is judging you based on what you spend. Sure. If somebody is going to judge me based on what clothes I wear and what I spend on, uh, how much I spent on my car, whatever, well, they are not going to be friends very long. I, I would avoid them, basically. I'm not interested in that. And in fact, it has happened to me, right? In, uh, in Silicon Valley, occasionally I've gone to some meet where, I mean, in an Indian, like a Diwali function, I remember mm. this was mm. maybe a few years ago. 
I showed up in a Toyota Camry, and most people will show up in fancy cars. This is some, uh, no. mm. and or at least some rich people thought I'm one of them. Mm. So I, I show up in a totally useless car from that perspective. And and somebody asked me, "You can afford a better car? Why are you mm. driving this?" I said, "I'm driving a car electric." Mm. <laughs> and let's say that we did not connect at all. We had no way to sort of see the world in a similar way. And uh, let's say that I, I after that I wasn't uh, very good friends with them very long. So that's the thing, right? And it is, it is actually those are the things that I have always been very uh, from early childhood that I determined that this is how I'm going to be, and uh, I don't really want to be influenced by what other people think mm. is cool. Okay, the definition of cool. Mm. In fact, I once uh, I remember. Naivety. This conversation happened, and I was listening to naivety. Even when I, in my time, in '85, I'm going from a Tamil medium school, and I, my taste in music is Tamil music, right? Mm. You go to IIT, and some of the students from, you know, the big name schools come, and they will only listen to English sure. popular song, right? And I don't know any of the names. I cannot. I don't know any of the songs. They tell me, "How could you be? You are so mystic." I told them, "We are moral." Mm-hmm. You are a moron. You think that musician in uh, US cares about you? That you listen mm-hmm. to? Mm-hmm. I am here. I listen to my music, and you are a moron. I told them. After that, people shut up. They never try to influence me that way. I said, mm-hmm. "Look, this is not a conversation we'll ever win because I have determined that you are a moron. <laughs> you are, you are, a, you are. You may be in IIT, but your IQ is very low. I can mm-hmm. already determine that. So don't ever advise me on what music I should listen." After that, nobody ever had a conversation like that with me. This happened in my very first, probably a couple of months, and I. <laughs> so you can see that I'm pretty strong-willed in this. Right. I don't, you know, and, and I I listen to what music I like to listen. To. I'm not right. influenced by friends what I should listen to, right? So that's what I think. A lot of us, like I said, about what thoughts we dismiss easily. Mm-hmm. Similarly, what thoughts are put in our head by our friends. Mm-hmm. And uh, we may not be comfortable with the thought, but we think the thought because our friends put the thought, or our friends want us to think the thought. Those are all traps that trap us. Mm-hmm. And if you free yourself from those traps, life is much more liberating. You know, it's, uh, it's how would one do that as a young, you know, college student? Well, there is a, I mean, there's a lot of ways. First, realize that the world is a very big place, mm-hmm. and uh, and right now I have. You know, friends here in this village, and I, I talk to people who absolutely don't care what car I would want to drive. But they have other priorities in life, and uh, we talk about their life challenges. So I can, you know, employment and uh, what education, health, basic things, right? And uh, how do you, how do you, and, and you know, there are. I mentioned today about alcohol abuse in the village. There is a number of women whose husbands lost their lives to alcohol addiction. And now, what what happens to them, right? What happens to their their children? What happens? And these are problems. And you know what? The last thing in their mind is what car I drive, and what they think is how oh, could I help them with employment or education for their children and showing a path. So I think about those problems, mm-hmm. and that is then that gives us a bonding. These are people who appreciate that I'm here. And I deeply, really do care about them. So we have a bonding. That is true friendship. That is how it's made, right? So that is, and, and if you are a young person, you will realize that the world is big. There is somebody who is, will be a good friend for you. 
maybe you are not that may not be your current set who cares about what kind of shoes you wear right but you just have to you know find a set of friends who are like that that's not all I'm, i'm moving to a rural area part of it is you actually get people who are attached more to reality mm. the one of the problems with bigger and bigger cities is more and more abstract life becomes sure that you don't know where your food comes from you don't know where mm. your water comes from you don't know where anything comes from mm. so you are as they say in software you are living eating layers of the stack mm. and the more abstract it becomes the harder it becomes right and, and that the, the life while rural life is simplicity it is you are connecting back closer to the soil closer to earth and so the abstraction layers get crunched and that's easier so there might be one way to do this too very interesting let's talk a bit about zoho culture right so i have heard of the zoho mafia right uh, similar to the ebay mafia or paypal mafia as it was called many successful founders have come from your uh, stable and a lot of them attribute their uh, learning or their skills to the time they spent at zoho right and even outside of that i think the kind of products that you have built uh, sitting in chennai or in tenkasi now the quality of the stuff that comes out is comparable to anything that comes from anywhere else so what makes the culture special what in terms of norms like if let's say there is a uh, startup founder who's listening to this right what norms or rituals or or uh, things culturally they can change or adapt that can make them uh, replicate some of the success that you are having so i have always believed in i never believed in micromanagement that's actually probably the most fundamental reason why so many people develop the skills mm. uh, to become you know founders of companies and uh, and in fact our company is that way uh, stable that way because I, to this day, we repeat this. Where we empower somebody, we say, "Go do this initiative." In fact, uh, we open a rural office, and I actually told the manager in question, "Look, you are. I expect you to completely lead this, mm. and you are actually. I completely trust you. I'll back you all the way, and you are going to do this. We are going to do this together. But you are going to guide this way, and you are going to learn. And some lessons we, you know, I don't know. I cannot tell you now because we are going to learn this together." Mm. So I had this conversation with them, and I told them that, and you know, in five years, I'm sure that they would be really good at it. So I mean, the hired, recruited, trained, and all of that. So this is actually the again, someone I actually also tell our managers that are you doing this to your team members? Are you empowering them to do this? Mm. And your own growth as a leader is going to depend on how many such people you have brought into sort of into leadership this way. Mm-hmm. Right, made them into leaders. So apply this recursively, as as we say in software. Mm-hmm. So what I'm doing, you do it recursively, then it grows, and that is why it happens that way. And there has been an enduring value here, and it's true from the beginning. Mm-hmm. In part, it comes from another uh, reason. I the reason I don't micromanage is also that I don't actually enjoy. I don't enjoy going around and poking into. Every every little thing, everything that goes in the company, everything I don't need to know. Mm. And uh, so, a lot of times, in fact, that, that empowers people to make a decision. And uh, if something is wrong, you know, I don't say, "Oh, why did you make the decision without asking me?" I say, "Let's okay, let's learn this lesson and move on." That's what I say actually. So I'm very failure tolerant. That way. Some decision doesn't go well, and I tolerate that and say, "Okay, let's move on. Let's do this better next time." And that 
empowers people to learn. And that's mm. what I'm trying to enshrine as a culture. So that's what I think I would advise to you. And for that, you have to let go of that micro. It's hard for some people, but it's easy for me because I don't enjoy doing it. But if I have to tightly micromanage everybody, that would be a torture for me. How do you think about a slightly a different tangent here? How do you think about growth versus sustainable growth? Right? Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of uh, focus on fast growth, doing whatever it takes, especially in the startup culture. I think it is even more. And yours has been a very different story. Right? There is merit to both sides. There is merit to growing fast in a place where consumer change or consumer behavior change is happening very rapidly. And you need to grow and acquire and uh, you know change behavior at scale. On the other hand, it is also making sense to grow slowly, build a product, and then iterate, and then grow even slower, uh, grow very gradually. Uh, let's say, what is your uh, advice to a person who is thinking of starting a company, and they are trying to choose a path between should I be uh, you know heavily VC funded or you know funded any other way, but grow fast, or I should go the Zoho way and grow on my own and grow slow. For a new person who has not yet started a company, how would you advise them? So this is a, ultimately it comes down to your personal preference and choice. Hmm. But you have to realize that there are some things that when you make a very fast growth plan, there are certain other things that come with it. For example, have a really good culture and something called cohesive culture may be very hard to do with very fast growth. The reason is that people become very uh, Short-term oriented, obviously, mm. by definition, and uh, very short-term and culture are not very fitting. And uh, in fact, I often say that: Would you say that the Central Rail- Railway Station has a culture? People mm. coming and going, and that is the culture of a lot of companies. People okay. coming and going. There's no culture, right? Mm. That's the culture of an airport, <laughs> the culture of a railway station, shifting mm. uh, population, right, all the time. Yeah. And um, and also, I joke that teams become like teams going in a railway compartment. We mm. are people in a railway compartment put together for the duration of the journey. Right. But then they are strangers, right? That also happens in very fast growth because yeah. you are forever adding and, and, and leaving and moving on, all of that happening. So, if you really wanted a stable, good culture, mm-hmm. very fast growth may not actually be compatible with it. At least I've not seen how you combine those two. In most cases, I think that becomes a hard challenge. Then the second one that goes with that, you are also under a pressure cooker in a mm. high growth. When you raise all this money, you have to show the growth. And so you are necessarily have to spend the money. And that is scary. The same we see who say spend, 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 spend this year, money is good. Then when you have only three months runway left, and the market condition shift, there's a stock market crash, will tell you save, 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 save. Mm. Or even come and tell you lay off people. Which suppose that you cared about that issue and you say, you know what, I took the advice to spend, spend, spend. Now you're asking me to lay off those very people I hired and I don't feel good about it. Mm. Well, we have to do it. You have to do it. It's, in other words, you all the kind of almost feel impersonal towards mm. And when you act impersonally that way, your people also know you're impersonal. It, as they say, it's just business, right? Mm. What's the big deal? So notions of mission, all that become empty slogans. Right. 
This has happened repeatedly. And somebody who actually truly believed will now come and say, you know what, I truly believe, but now I realize it's just business. We're just in it for money, right? Right mm. now. So those kinds of shifts come. And, and unfortunately, in very hyper-growth systems, given that you cannot actually predict what will happen. And if you burn all this cash right now, can anybody guarantee that in 2021 there will not be a big stock market crash, for example? Mm-hmm. And that in 2021 it will continue to be easy to raise money? Nobody can predict that in today, actually. In fact, the, the system has become increasingly more and more uncertain. So again, that, that is another kind of challenge that is hyper growth. And this puts a burden on leadership. The end result is people have gone through this. And I have talked to many, many people who have gone through this, who are successful at it. Actually, I know at least two or three people I count as friends who have gone through billion-dollar exits. Mm-hmm. They sold their company for billion dollars, two billion dollars. And, and they will tell you, I could not take the pressure anymore. Mm. And I don't want to repeat it now. They'll tell you, I don't want to repeat this. And, but you are successful. Why not? He said, well, there is success where you are going, one guy put it this way, you're going 200 miles an hour on a Ferrari and you're hoping you will not run out of gas. That's mm. the first running out of money. Or you won't crash and burn and kill yourself, which is <laughs> bigger money, right? And it's, it's nerve-wracking. And I'm glad I survived. We had a happy ending, but mm. I don't want to repeat it. Mm. Because it literally will kill me the second time, right? I mean, kill me in the stress, right? Yeah, yeah. So that is another problem. So these are all the other side of the high growth worship. Mm. There is a certain class of companies that seem to grow high growth. That's not kind of natural in that thing. Uh, Google in the early days and yeah. uh, even Facebook in its early days had the hyper growth without actually Google only raised $25 million in total. Okay. Mm. And so there was that. And Facebook actually had very high growth in for a very long and because it just took off, right? There was a network effects yeah. on it. And most businesses are not like that. Okay. The truth is those are very rare. Yeah. Very exceptionally rare. But we end up having to chase everybody having to chase those models even though most of the models don't necessarily fit. So that's actually why I always joke that we have always built a business. And sometimes might maybe there's a lot indicated where we grow something very fast, but if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. And we just continue to build a business. So that's how I see it. Shedar, what's your thesis on passion? Do people already, like when you started off, did you know that Zoho's what you wanted to build? Or it happened over time when you know you just experimented and you landed on something? Yeah, see, this again, actually, there is a, these Western notions of true love, deep romantic love, all of that. Western, you know, there's <laughs> a lot of notions. Yeah. Which, I mean, being Indian, I'm not particularly you know, interested in those ideas because I think those things do disservice to reality on the ground. Mm-hmm. In fact, most people then end up chasing the true love, deep love, and, and end up never getting it, right? That's mm. the problem. So, and same thing with passion. Honestly, if you had asked me when I was 21, 23, that this would be my life, I would have said no way. Mm. I don't even particularly, I don't even particularly like business or, or sales or any of that. Mm. I never thought of myself as a business person, actually. I thought of myself as a kind of a mathematician or mm. or something like that. That's what I would have thought. Mm. And at that time, if you asked me at 23, that was what I thought I was thinking. 
And so business, I, as I say, was accidentally in business. Mm. And then this idea where the business itself came from is, I look at all this totally underutilized talent in India. Mm. I felt compelled to do something about it, right? Rather than, I mean, one of the problems we see it in Twitter, all that, a lot of people express an opinion like, government should do this or somebody else should do that. Mm. Turn around and ask, well, are you prepared to do something about it, right? And uh, that would be a good question. And that's how I ask myself. Right. You see, I never ask government should do this. I ask, am I prepared to do this? Then maybe once we get doing something, then the government or something can ask something, right? But am I prepared to do it? Like that's why I don't, I didn't go and advise on doing development. I moved myself to a village and, and now maybe I will figure out something. Then maybe now, if the government asks, then I can say, you know, maybe these ideas. For example, we should do something about alcohol. Now I can say with some conviction. I see the alcohol in this year. So I know that this is, is a matter that requires attention from yeah. the government, right? So that is that is how I like to do it. That somebody should do something is not myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Am I prepared to do it? Or else I shut up. I don't I don't I don't like to talk about that topic. So for example, how do you make better movies? I won't find give any opinion on it because I um, I have <laughs> zero standing to say anything <laughs> on the topic. Okay, yeah, that's that's an example. Just a random example. So that is so passion ultimately is what you discover along the way. It is like love that blossoms over time, not you know that on um, instant love. Those yeah. are things you should be worried about. If somebody is totally deeply passionately in love in one day, I mean it's probably infatuation. They'll get over it. <laughs> so you've got to fall in love slowly and, and, and let it develop. Very good. Next one, you have worked in the US also. And the time I spent there, I always felt that uh, there are things which, especially from the valley, right? there are a lot of good things that we can learn from. What would you recommend that we learn from the West, especially from the valley uh, in the world of tech and world of startups? Uh, definitely in Zoho, we, for example, everybody calls everybody by name. Right. And uh, I instruct uh, the English employee to call me by name. And uh, we have a family, actually our seating arrangements we see in our office, no one has any special executive rooms or nothing. Mm-hmm. Everybody has the same kind of, a lot of these things are good ideas. Okay? I, I'm a, I'm, I take good ideas, I, I mercilessly see good ideas from anywhere. Mm-hmm. I have no biases. Mm. If some PC has a good idea, I'll take it. And if uh, I find a good idea in Russia, I'll take it. Right? Uh, China, I'll take it. So anywhere I find a good idea, I'll see. It's easy. But So that's the nice thing about Silicon Valley, that informality and, mm. you know, and, the not, and nobody cares about how you dress. But, right? You come in casually. Yeah. And I've extended it to, you know what, we could even come in our university in India, right? Why not? So, so that's what I do, right? Well, I mean, again, see, in particularly in India, some people treat there is a particular informal style of dress that is mandatory now, right? Yeah. If you are not wearing a particular style of informal dress, you are uncool. Yeah. That I call bullshit. That's not informal. That's that's another kind of rigid formality. You just yeah. you just you just call it informal. That's all, right? Yeah. So. I just say be natural, right? Be yourself. So that's the kind of thing that uh, we uh, we do here, and uh, those are things we learned. And what I did not learn 
did not learn, and I, I refused to learn, is some of these ideas where you have to, uh, the, what you do in the name of growth hacking, a lot of mm. this. And particularly in the late stage, in the last 10, 12, 15 years of the bubble era, this idea to hold that you could do anything to grow. And that includes doing shady things, okay? Really, truly shady things. Mm. Mm. Badly, you know, violating for privacy and this and that. Um, that's even justified as hacking, you know, in a good way, or, you know, use some good term for it. But yeah. the reality is, I mean, there is a lot of those uh, things that I don't approve of and I wouldn't do it. And I don't really care for it, honestly. And I don't respect it, honestly. So, so you write prolifically. You, you find time for things like this. I mean, you giving me an hour of your time, very valuable. So there always seems to be more to Sridhar than, you know, there is time in a day. So, do you do do you consider productivity or productivity hacking a big thing? How do you manage your time? What does a day look like uh, for you? I I don't actually think in that minutia of productivity, the calculus. That's the first thing I quit worrying about it. Um, to me, my ideal time is: Am I able to spend time thinking about the things I like to think about, whether it's technology, whether this or that, and uh, if it allows me to do that, I've had a productive day. The thing I don't like, for example, if somebody forced me to sit through a one-hour meeting where I'm not at all interested in the subject, that is unproductive. Mm. Productivity is defined that way fun, right? Is is your brain involved in something that it likes to be involved in? That could be, you know, for example, walking through the thing is a form of meditation. That's productivity. And I don't think productivity is only what is useful right now, but it's also, it, it, it uh, gives your mind uh, calmness. Yeah. That is productivity, right? But, so that that's, but what I don't do, uh, you'll not find me doing it. If I'm having a conversation with somebody, that there is some interaction that is meaningful to them and to me, and that is actually always true, and it has been true from, uh, and that's probably why I make a poor, you know, in many, many respects, I'm poor, right? I'll be, like, many times, actually, there's many conversations that I'm simply not part of mm. because people know that I, I wouldn't particularly be part of it. I wouldn't have anything to, anything to contribute or anything to add value to. So, but that's how I limit my interaction. Mm. And that, other than that, I actually try not to over-schedule my hours. So that means that you will not see my calendar filled with Mm. Meeting, 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 meeting every day. I hate it. In fact, my version of hell would be that. If I'm cursed and I'm in hell, my calendar would look like one hour. Every slot is taken. Okay? Right. Too many people live like this. I yeah. truly, truly feel sorry for them. My profound sympathies. Mm. Because that's a very, very bad way to live and I don't want that life. In fact, I would almost... No, I, I don't want any wealth. I don't want any of it. But I don't want that calendar. Mm. <laughs> I'll trade everything for not having the time. Yeah. <laughs> okay? So that's actually how I think. Mm. And then my calendar will look fairly sparse and you know, I'll have an occasional engagement here and there. Most of the time that's unstructured, then what am I doing? I could be reviewing code, I could be writing code, I could be reading something, I could be writing something, all of that. Thinking mm. about something. But generally, I am my 
at any particular time, certain threats dominate my head. Mm. Serially threats. Okay. So in software terms, you can think of them as threads running yeah. across running in your machine. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I always like to describe it in software terms. Currently, what are those threads running? Currently, the threads running are uh, rural revival, rural economic revival, and cultural, social, uh, and uh, spiritual revival in rural areas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is one thread that is dominating my head. Second, I actually think about issues of software, productivity, software, uh, what is the, I'll, I'll give you the question and I'll uh, answer it. In 50 years and 100 years, will there still be C programming language? In 50 or 100 years, should still be SQL databases. Right. Well, if not, what would change? Why would it change? Mm-hmm. That, that gives you a, this is yeah, a kind of threat. Okay, that, because that is a, that question has deep answers, that, that it, will, it will have implications. If you believe C would be the language still would be dominant in, say, building operating systems or whatever, then that's one answer. But if you believe, no, something else will come, what will it be? Why, what shape does it look like? Why does it look like that? Similarly, why does SQL databases, what do they look like in 50 years? So, and why I say 50 years is I want us to think very long range and think beyond our, you know, beyond my current life expectancy. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to live 50 more years, right? Mm-hmm. But at least it gives a, a, you know, then why does it keep that? Why is it going to change? So I, that thought dominates me, right? And when I look at the rural program, I also think in terms of economics principles. That's why I call it spiritual economics. You know, I just be grounded in something, a substrate. I reject most of the economics schools they teach. Honestly, I'll say this. I don't have, I don't respect most of the economists today. Mm. I reject their ideology as, Flawed. So I'm trying to build up a, an economic school and I'll be open. You know, I, I could fail. I'm perfectly accepting. But I know what I reject. Right. So, and it's not out of any uh, disrespect. I just don't find it very valuable. That that the pure materialist paradigm is why the world, humanity will destroy itself. All of our spiritual gurus have said it. Yeah. None of the economists have even considered that matter at all. Mm. Okay. As far as I, I've seen, most economies worship GDP. Okay, that's mm-hmm. a god, mm-hmm. and that is not a good path to, you know, sort of a life on this planet, sustaining mm-hmm. life on this planet. Then what does it look like? So those are the questions that dominate my thinking thought process. I've been uh, reading and rereading *Sapiens* the last uh, couple of months, and the, what you speak about, he covers it quite well. I, I don't know if you have read that book. Uh, yeah, I, I've actually yeah. uh, my uh, definitely gone through some chapters in it. I won't fully read it, but yes, I've read some parts. So especially the part about the, the way money rules the world, it's all about this part that you're talking about. Very interesting. Some quick questions, Sridhar, uh, I know we are short on time. Any books, podcasts, videos, anything that you have found exceptionally uh, useful, relevant in the last one year that you would recommend to somebody? Yeah, some classics. I long ago... No, I've, uh, I've read a couple of books that uh, led a lasting impact on me. One would be The Road to Serfdom by Hayek, mm-hmm. which is the meditation on liberty, as he calls it. It is a thought on liberty and being free. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think of it as some kind of a capitalist. Because it's actually more than that. It is a really about being really free. And 
being western book it doesn't address spirituality in it mm. but we definitely have to combine that with the being free and also in spiritual that is the lower attachments mm. and but it does explain the notion of capital mm. what is capital free mm. and then the capital has to be enduringly the foundation of free being free mm. because capital is what confers us the ability to not what is having capital mean i don't have to worry about what my meal tomorrow is going to come from okay that is capital that also confers the freedom because when worry constantly worrying about how am i going to eat tomorrow then i'm not free in a sense so you can see the intimate connection between capital and freedom and that is what uh, i talks about in this book the road to freedom mm-hmm. and it was written at a time when this totalitarian ideology spoke socialism nazism all that were ruling the world or trying to rule the world and This was a very good book, antidote to that, but it still has some really good, profound truths. And another book that actually addresses this whole materialist paradigm from a somewhat Eastern hmm. perspective, somewhat because it's, again it's a tangential connection there, is the Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. That book actually has a lot of book. Both are difficult books. These are not easy reads. Okay, but if you pay slow attention to it you will get a deeper understanding and that definitely that book has a deep deep message popular it used to be a popular book but yeah. but still has most people find it difficult to understand though but you are spending your time and it pays off when you spend the time and recently i've been reading about architecture why for example most 20th century architecture is lost it's a waste of time almost okay. <laughs> and in other words Three hundred years later, our descendants will look at our this era of architecture and think these people are idiots. Think about the building at all. That's what I'm. This book explains it. This is a architectural dystopia by a British architectural historian, and I will say it openly. I mean, I don't care to be criticized or attacked, but it is true. History will prove this that that most of the architecture, this um, this uh, concrete monsters we call architecture today, will not last. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, they won't be around two hundred years, three hundred years later, mm-hmm. and be a movement. So, and that why is that? Why did that happen? That was the book I read. topics are related to these so i've been doing this fascinating thanks for sharing if you were to if i were to give you a billboard right in the middle of the biggest city uh, with the most population with an audience that you want to address and if i gave you one sentence to say what would it say <laughs> that's a tough one these are all the kind of the i call these uh, interview questions right <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to go okay. with one But, uh, you, you can go with as many as you want, Sridhar. It's it's your interview, so go for it. As many as you want. So I'd say prestige is a trap. I'd say prestige mm. is a trap. That so many of us are trapped by what other people think of us, which mm. is version of prestige, right? That I don't want to lose face. So I'll put this uh, mystical sounding thing that phrase: prestige is a trap. Or I'll expand it: prestige is a trap we set for ourselves. Because actually, a trap we set for ourselves. That's a good one. You don't have that. Yeah, I'll give you a the prestige trap example, right? I was uh, 
riding a motorcycle. I mean, I don't ride motorcycle. I don't know how to ride a motorcycle. But uh, and I recently rode one just for fun, and I fell down. Mm. Actually, right in the middle of the village. There was about 100 people were watching. I fell down. Luckily, I was going very slow, and I was only at uh, maybe two kilometers, one kilometer an hour, and I fell down. Luckily, nothing happened. It was about yeah. a couple of months ago, so I'm still alive. So, and uh, 100 people are watching, right? And they look at me and they think, why is he driving doing stupid things like this and coming down the motorcycle and, and falling down? And I got up and all these people are watching and I laughed and said, now you know I don't know how to drive a motorcycle. And I'm motorcycle, what three? I know, what three are Right? Yeah. So then they started laughing, right? Yeah. So that was, you know, trusting to the trap. Now I, I told them also, next time I get on a motorcycle, stay far away from me and maybe just pray for me that I won't kill myself. I joked. <laughs> so that's, you know, that's an example of, you know, that, that's why you don't want to see, right? To see yeah. the crap. That's a, I'll take that. That's a very good one. Uh, Shiva, see, you, like, I'll, I'll go back to the question I started with. Right? You, you are a very different thinker. Even when you mentioned your days in IIT, the way you shut down people who criticized your uh, music taste, that's not the behavior of a normal kid, right? A college-going kid. So if you, go, if you think about what made you you, were there any instances in your childhood or early youth that shaped the way you are very you know, strong-minded? Yeah. Yeah. Were there any instances, anything that uh, we can learn? Yeah. Actually, just today, I found a kid, young kid, six-year-old, who is who told me. I mean, he actually comes from a city, to the village. He's come here due to the pandemic and all this reason. And he told me he doesn't want to go back to the city, and he loves it here. Mm-hmm. And he is, uh, and his grandfather is here. And he said, "I'm going to stay with the grandfather. I don't want to go back with my parents to the city." And I told his parents, you know, I was exactly like this. As a six-year-old, I was doing this. I would beg my parents, I want to say, I don't want to go back to the city, right? Mm. I would beg and I would cry, I would scream, I would tantrum, all of this. I I never wanted to go back to the city. And uh, then I told them, look, probably my enduring taste for being free came from roaming around these streets, roaming around these uh, woods and roaming around and uh, Feeling free, feeling the mm-hmm. free. And in the city, I felt confined, mm-hmm. cooped up. And young children need the freedom, Romero. In fact, you know this, we have young children, you, you, you know this. They love the freedom of open space. And Indian cities don't have any open space. We don't give them any open space. <laughs> so, the, probably my most influential experience of childhood is. I got to spend a lot of time in the village and I loved it simply because of space. Nothing else. I didn't care about anything else. Mm. Space. Just roaming around. And mm. being able to roam around. And I still roam around. In fact, after doing this, I'll probably roam around. I'll have a one hour walk. <laughs> I roam around, right? Nice. And that is probably the most... Then once... You know, this deep. Actually, I'll tell you, every spiritual master from regardless of religion, Mm. You go back to Adi Shankara, you go back to the Buddha, and you go back to Jesus, mm. you go back to the Prophet Muhammad. They were all roaming around the mountains and the deserts and the forests, mm. all of them. Think about it, actually. And there was 
something deeply spiritual about this connecting with nature, connect, communing with nature, open space, that makes you in a way free, it liberates your mind. And uh, that is, in fact, I told this kid's parents that your mental vistas correlate with the physical vistas that you develop in your head. This is not my discovery. I think this is more. In fact, I, I said it in Tamil. I said, Paranda Manapanda Venerana, Paranda Veli Larkana. So your mental vista and your physical vista. So I, I, I told them, maybe, you know, your, your child knows a lot more than you think he knows. He's only like five years old, six years old mm-hmm. now. But pay attention to this because he's expressing some deep desire yet. And so don't ignore him. I told them, you know, normally, you know, you just think, oh, it's just a child. And we'll take him. But you would be killing something inside him. Please don't do this. I told them, if he likes the village, maybe have him you know, spend a lot of time here. So that is, uh, that's, I got to spend that time. That's probably what came down. But being able to, that, that uh, broad, broad vistas, open vistas. Very good. So what would you say to, you know, professionals in cities who have kids who want to move to smaller towns, but yeah. think about, you know, education, medical facilities, yeah. you know, a lot of things that they, again, like you said, prestige being a trap. These are also traps that they might have set in their own hearts. What would you say? Not only about traps, not about traps. Particularly in South India, all the southern states, it's true that you are not that far from uh, hospital or doctor. All of it. You may not be very close, but you are not that far. You mean about 20 minutes, 30 minutes, which even in Bangalore in traffic, it's going to take you 30 minutes to get to hospital. Uh, maybe an hour, right? So that's one. Facilities are, are cool. Second, education. No, I actually am, uh, I think most urban professionals put their kids in schools that actually are detrimental to their children. Long-term. I'll say this and I'll, I'll stick to my uh, conviction on this. I went to very easy schools. In fact, I'm really grateful to my parents that I got to go to schools that nobody cared about achievement, all that push, all that push. So I was free again. I was free. I was free. I was free to read Tupla. I was free to read Indian Express later, Arun Shari. So my lot of my education came from these things. I would read Tupla again to cover to cover. And I would read Arun Shari. Even when I was in maybe eighth standard, I, I could give you a detailed analysis of Tamil Nadu politics mm. thanks to Tukla magazine. Right? And then when I was in 10th standard, I could give you a detailed analysis of Indian politics thanks to Arun Shari. And that left an imprint. I mean, is that good for a 10th standard kid to know so much detailed politics? Well, good for me to know. I liked it. <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's not that your kid needs to know politics, but maybe they'll give you a detailed analysis of the movie industry, right? Sure. Or a detailed analysis of something else, right? But I'm saying that they have to be free. And we are over structuring, over pushing our kids. And, uh, and we think that. Oh, they learn Python at 12 and they are going to be awesome. You really want to ask, did they really want to learn Python or you pushed it on them, you know? And, and are they going to stick to it when they are 25? Because, you know, that's a serious danger where right? you push the kids too much. At 25, they get burnt out. I mean, there's a lot of such walking around burnt out people, young people in cities. You see that. Yeah. You see that actually visibly. And so on, they have to deprogram themselves. And a lot of parents inflict this on their kids, thinking that they're doing them a favor. They're not doing them a favor. 
So I would say today education, it is better to go to easy schools and then augment it with your Khan Academy and your all of this on when they are when they are interested in something. And you also want music and you want art, all of those. Please don't make it just the official syllabus. Mm. Don't expose your kids to music and art and maybe some crafts and maybe some motorcycle repair and maybe some electrical water mm. winding, all of those things, right? Mm. And that's actually what I'm trying to do in our school here. And then we've started a kind of an informal school here for the real kids, all the kids of the for the agricultural workers and the like mm. who definitely cannot afford any fancy school. I'm